0: here we go the official show on the fish stripes podcast channel i'm eli sussman managing editor of fish stripes jump a brand new week of miami marlins coverage this show presented by Symbol, the stock market for sports. You'll hear plenty more about them later on in the show. As a, It's a big busy week coming up ahead. Seven games in seven days. And even before that, of course, we'll be reviewing what happens this past weekend. The debut of these Cuban Sugar Kings uniforms and the Marlins took two out of three against the Mets. A couple very tightly contested games and then... Uh, Uh, A nice sigh of relief on Sunday as they finally played their best baseball in in a little while to to take that series from the Mets and creep even closer in the tightly contested National League East. A big focus of this episode later on will be about the catching situation of the Marlins. We knew this was going to be a weakness of the team heading into the season, and it has proven to be exactly that. Jorge Alfaro potentially will be returning from the injured list on Monday, right as you're listening to this episode. So, we'll be reviewing exactly what kind of impact to expect from Alfaro, how long the leash is going to be for him to bounce back to his 2019 form, really his 2018 form pre trade, and uh, where the Marlins go from there. Because, as I just said, this is a tightly contested division. The Marlins are still alive and well. And when they have this one obvious weakness on the roster, there's only so much longer that they can go without addressing it externally if these internal options continue to fall short. And this being a Monday, coming off a full slate of games from the Marlins and all their minor league affiliates, I'll be spotlighting my prospects of the week in the Marlins organization. So going back to the major league level, these past three games at Lone Depot Park against the Mets, debuting these legacy red Cuban Sugar Kings uniforms that are oh so popular and seeing them in action they lived up to all of the hype. Uh, That first game was uh, one of the more memorable games of the year but not in a good way if you're the Marlins. The Mets came to town technically in first place but uh, the players that put them in that position for the most part were not available for as much as Marlins fans have Seen some critical injuries to the team early on in the season. It's really nothing compared to what the Mets are dealing with right now. Their roster is totally decimated at the moment, and they trotted out a lineup of a couple guys that you probably had never even heard of in their starting lineup throughout this series, beginning on Friday. There was no reason to expect a high scoring game. Uh, the final in this one met six, Marlins five, with the aid, of course, of those extra inning rules. And it even took them until the 12th inning. They had to get into the third extra inning before either team even scored. Yeah, a frustrating game to watch. Um, Marlins calling this one a quote unquote bullpen game. Uh, it was not exactly a well-kept secret that Jordan Holloway was going to be handling the bulk of this innings as he had a uh, couple previous turns of the rotation. A big test for him, and, and there was some optimism, I would say, at least on my part, going against a shorthanded Mets lineup. And uh, so by, by the time they got the ball to Holloway coming out of the bullpen, they were already down 2-0. Uh, a couple runs scored against John Curtis, who opened up the game And Holloway looked fine in his first inning of work, and then he did not come back. It turns out that he suffered a groin injury. He has since been placed on the IL, a big bummer for him, knowing just how much he had to prove in this opportunity, and now um, a lot of questions as to how exactly he'll fit on this Major League roster, if at all, on the Major League roster once he fully recovers from the injury. As a result of him going out with that groin injury, they emptied the bullpen, and I do mean emptied it. This is the first time all year where the Marlins went through everybody, every available pitcher that they had, 10 guys used in this game to help the Marlins get through it, and um, do I have that right one? Yeah, I can't even believe it. Yeah, really 10 pitchers that they had in this extra long pitching staff to that were available, and for the most part, a lot of them got the job done. Curtis didn't, but he was hurt by some defense. Zach Pop finally lost his scoreless streak. That had been dating back for more than a full month. I think we all need to still be pretty pleased with what the rookie has given them this season, but allowed a run here. And from there, the Marlins did come back in the later innings to tie it up in the seventh. That was, that was Garrett Cooper. He was the big star of this weekend, probably the most impactful player. A home run against Miguel Castro. So not a cheapy. That's a it's tough caliber of competition to hit a home run off of that tied it up at 3 in the 7th and it stayed that way all the way into the 12th inning. There was that Jonathan VR base running gaffe and I guess it should be mentioned that this game was memorable because of what we were hearing on the TV from Bally Sports Florida, Tommy Hudden on the call. His first game as a in the booth as a color commentator in years. Uh, If you want to hear more of some of Tommy's uh, comments during that show, we actually cut it together and put it on our YouTube page, Fish Stripes. Go ahead and subscribe to us over there to get that video. But ultimately, the Marlins don't get that win for him because uh, with all the available pitchers used, Adam Simber had to work a second inning of work into the 12th, and he gets beat by a couple rookies in the Mets lineup, uh, Janeski, Fargus, and Khalil Lee, guys that you have probably never heard of until this game, and they combined to drive in three runs in the top of that inning. The Marlins make it interesting in the bottom of the 12th, but ultimately Adam Duvall gets out representing the tying run in the bottom of that inning. On Saturday, more so than anything, the spotlight was on Pablo Lopez. They needed length out of Pablo and quality. He delivered, again, facing a very depleted Mets lineup that is led by Jonathan VR, Francisco Lindor, and a whole lot of nobodies, to be honest with you, and Pablo did the job. Seven innings, only allows four hits, one walk, eight strikeouts for Pablo, and that lowers his ERA on the season down to 2.73, so it was great. As is typical when Pablo takes the mound, run support is always very tough to come by, almost at a comical level that he still only has one win on the entire season despite being one of the better pitchers in the National League. So the Marlins do finally give him one round of support in the bottom of the seventh. I think that was that Corey Dickerson uh, go-ahead sacrifice fly that they finally break through once the Mets go to their bullpen. I mean, this was a whole bullpen game for the Mets, um, and it was frustrating enough that the Marlins didn't break through until the seventh, but they get that run uh, just trying to hold it for the final two. In the eighth, Anthony Bass setting up uh, Yimmy Garcia. That He has been pitching a lot better lately. I didn't totally blame this decision to bring Bass in here and just uncharacteristic of what we've seen from Bass lately. I mean, sometimes this year he's been hit hard when he leaves the ball up in the zone, but in this case, he just could not find the zone in the first place. Back-to-back walks in this one to get the team into trouble in that eighth inning. Mattingly didn't even trust him to get through it. He brought in Richard Blyer, who him, who him himself has been great lately, just like Bass p- pitching on the second consecutive day here, just looking for that final out to escape the inning. He makes such a clutch pitch to Dom- Dominic Smith that should have been called strike three, should have been out number three to escape the jam with that lead intact. And home plate ump Alfonso Marquez, he saw it differently. A borderline call, and honestly, wasn't even borderline. It was in the zone. It goes against the Marlins, though, and Blair has to make one extra pitch. Smith delivers that game-tying hit. Very frustrating moment. And as I tweeted out at the Fishtripes account in that moment, if the Marlins did not pull out that win, and if they somehow lost the series to the shorthanded Mets team right there uh, because of that controversy and because of the lack of offense— that it would have been a big crisis for the team overall. And it just shows you how delicate this season is and the kind of small margins that make the difference. The Marlins do wind up winning this game. Uh, Yimmy pitches a scoreless top of the ninth. And then in the bottom, Garrett Cooper delivers again. Payoff pitch coming. It's a fly ball out to deep left center field. A three-hit game for Garrett Cooper. This home run pulverized against Drew Smith, the Mets reliever. Great celebration coming all the way around. Uh, And Cooper, ever since uh, it's been this past week and a half or so, where he has been on the short list of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. It's it's as simple as that. This was his third straight game with a home run, and it was at a time a seven-game hitting streak. He would extend it to eight straight on Sunday. It's been huge. It's been huge. And Brian Anderson on a similar spot. I was never quite as worried about BA as I was about Cooper at some times earlier this year, but kind of right on cue, exact same timeline. Brian Anderson has caught fire as well. He had three hits in this game. He, is one, he was the guy on base when Cooper hit that home run to decide the game. So great to have those guys heating up. Although, unfortunately, the top of the lineup has cooled down, which is why this offense overall continues to be Just very mediocre overall. They just can't seem to all click at the same time. But nonetheless, it's good to have at least a couple hitters that you can really rely on at the moment. Then the rubber match Sunday's series finale. We had suspected that Jordan Yamamoto would get the start. Old friends trying to exact revenge on the team that traded him away just a couple months ago. And true enough, he does get the start. Um, and he wasn't, it was hard to judge his outing for Yamamoto. I honestly didn't think he looked that terrible. I mean, he didn't allow an extra base hit. The entire Mets pitching staff on Sunday allowed zero extra base hits, but all five runs that Miami scored was in that second inning. So there's a little good luck that happened there, no doubt about it. Some good sequencing of Mar- the Marlins' hits to get that run across without the benefit of hitting for any power whatsoever. Yamamoto kind of brought some of this trouble on himself. Uh, He was involved in two defensive plays in that second inning. um, That he, uh, a better defensive pitcher, uh, helps his own cause a little better than that. Uh, it, It was really some tough luck and some, just frankly, some poor fundamentals on him his part to allow that big rally to happen. He ended up throwing 38 pitches in that inning. So his final line, four innings pitched, six hits allowed, five runs, four of them earned, two walks, two strikeouts. He pitched better than that would signify. I imagine he'll get some other starting opportunities for the Mets as this season goes on. Um, but yeah, overall, the Marlins get those runs there, and that's all they needed with Cody Poteet on the mound, making his third major league start, and he did a great job. Follow up to what Pablo did the night before almost identical numbers for Poteet to so go seven scoreless innings, three hits allowed, four strikeouts, and no walks. Uh, it needs to be emphasized again just facing a terrible Mets lineup that unfortunately has had to scramble to put things together without Pete Alonso, without Michael Conforto, without Brandon Nimmo. And now I'm sure there's others that are slipping my mind. Yeah, I mean, just so many key players. J.D. Davis. These are guys that hit for power, that they get on base, and they've been replaced by next man up from AAA, from picked up the scrap heap. That This was not a high quality of competition. I've spoken about Poteet on one of last week's episodes. Why I'm so encouraged by him, he is legit, and it sort of came abruptly. This was not the guy he was in the in the minor leagues. He put in that work during the pandemic year, and his fastball velocity has ticked up. His changeup and his curveball commands are great. He spots those on the corners of the zone. He has all the makings of a legitimate major league starting pitcher, um, but I want to caution us not to get too excited until seeing exactly what he does. His upcoming start against the Red Sox in Boston, that will be by far the best and healthiest lineup that he's gone against. And of course, more importantly, later in the year, once he faces teams for a second time or potentially a third time, that that's always a very big test. Overall, three starts for him so far in the major leagues, and he has allowed just two runs total. It is. If it feels a little bit familiar, that's because it is. Watching Marlins games, they had a rookie do a very similar thing in his first major league starts back in 2019. That rookie was Jordan Yamamoto. It's crazy how it all links up like that. The numbers eerily similar through three starts. Uh, Poteet does a few things that you like better than Yamamoto, but he also has uh, some limitations as well. So I think the jury is still very much out on exactly what to expect from Poteet, but for the moment, he does have a very firm grasp on one of those back-end rotation spots, especially now that Holloway is, is injured for the near term. So in this game, as I said, no Marlins extra base hits. In fact, uh, no balls that were really anywhere close to being home runs. Sandy Leone, of all people, had the farthest hit for any Marlins batter in this game, 342 feet. And Corey Dickerson had the second longest at 332 feet. And I bring that up just because those guys have only one home run apiece all year. So those are two guys that you never really have any expectations of them hitting for power. And yet they're the only ones that hit... Long play balls of any authority. It was good to see Haitius Aguilar get a hit in this game. He was in the midst of, I believe, a 1-for-28 skid. Um, but he's had a few very uh, ferocious line drives lately. Only one of them fell for a hit. But overall, seeing several of those back-to-back-to-back to back to back in during this weekend, it gives you hope that he will break out of this funk relatively soon. Garrett Cooper extended his hitting streak. The infield defense in this game was great. Um, that's one thing to keep in mind when looking at Poteet's final line. He was allowing a lot of balls in play, and his teammates were picking him up. That infield defense has been a strength of this team throughout the year, and I expect that to continue. And finally, I can't record any podcast with at least shouting out Anthony Bender. So he's the one that finished this game off with a four-run lead. He continues to be incredible. The, the arm side run that he gets on that fastball and his ability to spot his slider and get chases out of the zone with that pitch. It's no surprise to me that he still has a flawless 0.00 earned run average this deep into the year. I mean, the sample size is growing. He's been up for almost a month at this point and showing no signs of slowing down. Uh, Cuban Heritage Night was on Saturday. Very fitting to align with the City Connect uniforms that they wore. And at that time, it set a record for their largest home crowd that they've had this season. Nearly, I think slightly over 7,500 fans in attendance. We had our photographer, Denise Sosa, on hand. You could see some of his photos from that game Um, On our website, fishstripes.com, we'll put it even in this podcast article so you could behold some of the sights of that beautiful contest, both on the field and in the stands. Then on Sunday, they kind of one-upped that, even without any special giveaway. They didn't have the Alfaro bobblehead giveaway like they did on Saturday. They didn't have a special Heritage Night tie-in, and yet attendance was nearly 8,000 on Sunday According to Lone Depot Park, they were completely at capacity under the current limitations. So great to see that turnout, both from Marlins fans and from Mets fans. You need to give the Mets a lot of credit for being the big draw in this situation. And they saw the Marlins get a rare easy win there on Sunday, improving to 22-24 here, 46 games into this season. We take a break to remind you that this is a partnership between Fish Stripes and Symbol, the stock market for sports. Now, over two months in partnership with Symbol sponsoring this podcast, uh, Symbol allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when those teams win. Use your knowledge about MLB, the NFL, the NBA to buy low, sell high, and profit. They have market analysis directly on their site, on their Twitter account as well. Follow them at Symbol Exchange. You can find more Analysis about the Marlins and the NLE team stocks on fish Stripes directly, including articles coming up these next couple of weeks of fresh updates about getting you comfortable with their platform so that you can invest and win. More than 2,000 plus early adopters are already building their portfolios with Symbol. www.simbull.app, Symbol.app. That's where you go to create your free account. You could click the link directly in our podcast article or in the podcast description. Use that promo code Stripes, all one word, Stripes for a $10 deposit bonus. Current Sim Marlins share price is $29.01. Promo code FISHSTRIPES, $10 deposit bonus to help build your portfolio and get started with Symbol. Invest in what you know. Invest in sports. The final thing to touch on from this previous week is my Marlins Minor League Players of the Week. Marlins Prospects of the Week, I need to decide exactly what to headline this segment. Uh, Last week, we gave it to Zach McCambley and Federico Palanco, and this week, it's all in Pensacola, beginning with our Hitter of the Week is Peyton Burdick. The third round draft pick of the Marlins in 2019, someone who very immediately stepped into pro ball and began producing at a higher level than anybody could have hoped for, he got off to a terrible start to this 2021 season. The Marlins gave him an aggressive assignment up to Double A Pensacola after only playing at low A level when we last saw him in the minor leagues. So he got off to a slow start, striking out all the time, and during this past week, he totally flipped the switch. A slash line of 320, 346, 880, slugging 880. That's an OPS of 1226 during this past week, hitting three home runs. And maybe my favorite detail about his performance is he played four games in center field, all of them starting in that position. Uh, Opening the season, Pensacola had Victor Victor Mesa penciled in as a center fielder. He's been out with an ankle injury for more than a week now, and that's meant that they are basically filling it by committee. And primarily, at least this past week, it's been paid in Burdick. The Pensacola Blue Wahoos, they win five out of six games during this past week, in large part due to Burdick and what he's doing at the top of that lineup and how he's helping them hold it together defensively. An honorable mention has to go to Griffin Conine, Son of Jeff, of course, who over the last two weeks combined, I think you might have to say that he, during that span, has been the most impressive position player in the system. So, kind of tough luck for him just based on how the calendar cuts it off. But during this past week, he also homered, I think, three times as well, and uh, including one on Sunday. He is really into his own a lot of similarities I would say to Peyton Burdick in terms of offensively where he'll draw his walks he'll hit for power but he's also prone to strikeouts as well Um, most of the games this week Griffin Conine played in the field but also used a designated hitter at times a a good week for Beloit in the same way that it was for Pensacola they end up winning their series to get over the 500 mark on the pitching side the so this one was interesting because the first name that came to mind on the minor league side had to be Eliezer Hernandez. He made two starts this week uh, on Tuesday and then on Sunday for AAA Jacksonville. As you know, he is rehabbing from his arm injury, biceps injury that has kept him out for, at this point, I mean, geez, seven weeks. And he was nearly perfect in his first rehab outing, but only went three innings. And then here on Sunday, he was nearly perfect again and went four and two thirds before getting stopped by his pitch count limit. Cut off at 55 pitches in those two starts combined he has not issued a single walk i don't think and he's he's just been incredible racking up the strikeouts particularly on sunday did it a lot with his fastball even though his curveball is slider excuse me is his signature pitch his usual put away pitch He did it in a variety of ways on Sunday against AAA hitters. These aren't just any rehab hitters uh, in the minor leagues. This is the highest level, facing a lot of competition that is honestly about the same age as Eliezer Hernandez, and yet dominant results in both of those outings. The real selection here for Pitcher of the Week would be Max Meyer, who of course is the top draft pick from the 2020 Marlins class. And he started his pro career on a great note a couple weeks ago, then a big step back in his second outing, and now a rebound to what was arguably his best performance so far as a pro, racks up nine strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings, five and two-thirds scoreless, um nearly 35% of his pitches were called strikes or whiffs that's that csw rate that i love to reference increasingly as we move forward uh, 84 pitches relatively efficient and by far the the most pitches that he's been able to throw in an outing so far so it's great to see him getting stretched out to something resembling a normal starters workload he's on a pretty close watch this year as you would expect being limited to one start per week under all circumstances so we'll have to see him in uh, presumably this upcoming Wednesday for Pensacola. Uh, so a great step for Max Meyer, as you would expect, got amazing results off of his slider, which with all due respect to Eliezer Hernandez, Meyer might have an even nastier put away pitch with that slider that he can throw to both lefties and to righties. So he he'll, he'll looked great in this one. We got a good view of it at uh, Blue Wahoos Stadium. So Max Meyer gets back on track And congrats also to Peyton Burdick on getting his season back on track as well. We finish off this episode with this broad look at the Marlins catcher situation. Now is the perfect time because all signs point to Jorge Alfaro being reinstated from the injured list. It's been, I think it's been kind of under the radar almost how long he's been out. It's been a full month that they've been without Jorge Alfaro. Slightly more than that, he did have a small setback. Originally a hamstring injury, and then he was feeling some soreness on his left side last week, and that really pushed him back almost an entire week. Like, the original timeline was for him to have already rejoined the team for this homestand. Uh, instead, it just seems to make it just in time for the Phillies series. Exploding on Saturday in his final game against uh, in Triple-A. Rogers looking at the runner, Harrison dancing from second. Swinging a towering fly ball by Alfaro deep to left center field, heading for the bullpen, and that one carries out. The big man drives one out. A three run Alfaro home run. Five innings from those two guys before they went to Baltimore. Swinging a high towering fly ball into right. Here's Jared back. Warning track Whoa, That one's gone. And the Bear has done it again. Two no-doubt home runs for Alfaro. One of them pulled, one of them to the opposite field. That's the kind of power that he has. He has always had that. There's never been any doubt about it, that he is some of the best raw power of, of anybody in pro baseball and probably more than anybody else in the Marlins organization at any level. You love that about him. And the question is, can he tap into that power in Major League games? Because he has not done very much of that whatsoever during these the past two years. And it's a small sample because missed half of 2020 due to COVID. And of course, had missed nearly all of 2021 thus far due to this hamstring injury and, and the setback on top of that. But overall, just to review since the start of 2020 alfaro hitting 227 272 320 that's a 65 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average 35 percent below league average with i guess generously you could describe it as ordinary defense where at times he's been kind of a defensive liability over these past couple years should we expect that moving forward from alfaro or should we expect the career norm for Alfaro? Overall, his career stats hitting 261, 314 on base, 410 slugging. That's a 93 weighted runs created plus, which for a catcher is like right on par with the league average. And his defense has been good at times. You already know about his arm, and he's at times been really passable as a pitch framer, as someone that will always have a little bit of trouble blocking pitches because of his size, but he can at least hold his own back there historically over this larger sample. What Alfaro are the Marlins going to be getting moving forward? I think even though you know, I don't have a whole lot of confidence one way or the other, I think we can agree that he will be an upgrade over their current solutions. This this maybe has flown under the radar a little bit, just how awful Marlins catchers have been this season. They are arguably the worst catching unit in baseball, more so than anybody else. Going to baseballreference.com tracking wins above average by individual positions, uh, according to each team overall. And I mean at some of these positions, the Marlins have been just fine overall. At third base with Brian Anderson's hot streak, they're up to league average. With um with Jesus Aguilar, at first base, they're right around league average. Uh, in some of the outfield spots, in right field, they're at league average. In center field, they're above league average. At catcher, they are the worst. It's the biggest weakness of the team. Negative 1.7 wins above average. So uh, that number is so extreme. It's actually below replacement level overall production. In Alfaro's absence, you know that the tandem has been Chad Wallach and Sandy Leone. And their playing time has been relatively evenly split with a slight edge going to Sandy Leon and the numbers here are pretty fascinating because, I mean, offensively, my expectations for Leon were low. He has been consistently one of the worst hitters in baseball over the last three plus years. Uh, But even by his standards, this is really unsightly where he is not getting hits. He's not hitting for any power and I mean, the strangest thing is he's not even drawing walks, the lowest walk rate of his career to this point. I think just three walks and 78 plate appearances. His OBP went up a tiny bit on Sunday just by being hit by a pitch, so that's just some pure luck. He doesn't hit the ball over the wall, and both him and Wallach have a lot of trouble just running. (laughs) They are two, even by catcher standards, they're a couple of the slowest catchers in baseball this year and that turns a lot of doubles into singles and makes them limits them to going station to station when they're on the bases in the rare instances that they actually make it on base and it just doesn't give them any opportunity to beat out infield hits so that's the one dimension that you know Alfaro is a big upgrade throughout his career he is a plus runner by any standard, but especially in terms of catcher, he's elite by catcher standards in his sprint speed, in his acceleration, and he's got a decent amount of aggressiveness too, uh, even while he's on the bases. As afara will, like, even as if he puts the bat on the ball under any conditions, then he's someone that will turn more hits than what you expect. That's why throughout his career, his batting average on balls in play has been spectacular. It has come back down to earth a little bit in recent years. So long story short, that's why I wouldn't really consider it realistic for him to reach his overall career standards as a hitter, where he's that has that 93 weighted runs created plus, um, just because early in his career, he was A true outlier. He was historically the highest batting average on balls in play of anybody in like the post-integration era. It was insane. It was unprecedented. Even for a great athlete, it just was not sustainable, the kind of luck that he was having on balls in play. Um, On the other hand, he does some things that will always lend themselves to better than average results in those categories because of how well he runs and because of how hard he hits the ball. He crushes it. Uh, Even in his limited time this year, he had one of the top, I think, top three or top five hardest hit balls of any Marlins player this year. It's right up there with Jazz Chisholm and better than what they get from anybody else on this roster. He has that kind of incredible natural strength and ability to channel it. The main knock on Alfaro is that he just does not put the ball in play. He does not recognize pitches coming out of the hands. He's he's always been someone that's a high strikeout guy, and there's really no way to turn that around unless he develops this innate ability to recognize pitches all of a sudden and to be more disciplined. It was just in such a tiny sample, like I'm really cautioned to refer to any 2021 stats for Alfaro because we're just talking about nine games and 36 plate appearances. However, before that injury, what does stick out is that he was taking a slightly different plate approach in that he was being more patient on the first pitch of a plate appearance. Now, historically, he's been hyper-aggressive from the get-go, a first-pitch swinging rate of in the mid-40s, year after year after year. Uh, Insane. The swing at the first pitch nearly half the time. And so far in 2021, before his injury, he was all the way down to 30.6%, less than one in three, Late appearances where he was offering at that first pitch. So, what does that do for you? You know, it buys you time to get a better pitch to hit. It makes sure that you, it reflects the fact that he might not be chasing pitches out of the zone uh, unless he really is confident that they'll be hittable pitches from the get go. It's such a small sample that I don't want to read too far into it, but I think it's a good sign uh, from what little we did see of him before the injury that he was willing to work deeper counts at the very least. I mean, even if you are still striking out, as long as you take that first pitch, um, then you'll give yourself an opportunity to work deeper counts and, that's just more valuable to the team. If you're making the opposing starter throw more pitches, if you're letting anybody work deeper into that count, it buys you time for them to make a mistake, or it forces the other team to have to go to the bullpen and make a change even when they don't necessarily want to. So a little thing like that that stuck out to me about him, and the other side of this is just figuring out how much of an upgrade he represents over what they currently have with Leon and Wallach. So I already mentioned Leon as a hitter. It's been a disaster, even if you had no expectations going into it. And he has some really intriguing stats in terms of uh, his defense and his intangible ways of working with pitchers. So across the board from both baseball savant and from baseball prospectus, they consider him one of the worst pitch framers in baseball. I think that might surprise you And surprised me just because that was something that stuck out to me as a positive with Sandy Leon prior to joining the Marlins, that he would steal some strikes in that way. That has not been the case early on this year. And pitch framing is the kind of stat that you get so many um, data points early in the year because you're behind the plate for an entire game for 150, 200 pitches. So we have a pretty big sample, thousands and thousands of pitches that Leon has caught already for the Marlins and he is among 70, 80, 85 catchers in the big leagues this year. Leon is like bottom 10 in his pitch framing. He in terms of the borderline pitches that he is not turning into strikes. And so far it doesn't it hasn't killed the team too much. It's only a couple runs uh, approximately that have been Charge against the Marlins because they're not getting into, they're not putting away hitters on those borderline pitches and they're getting into undesirable counts. So, so far it hasn't killed the team, uh, but it is worth just mentioning that that has been a weakness for Leon. In that Alfaro, um, again dealing with the small sample size early this year before his injury, that he actually rated as the best pitch framer on the Marlins. To, to that point that we've seen so far in 2021. So that's one area where he gets runs back. And we know Alfaro has that strong arm that um, his success rate at throwing out runners in his career has kind of fluctuated a little bit. What you do know is that it deters guys from attempting steals in the first place. So that's a plus to have his presence back there. G- switching over to Chad Wallach, he's been more serviceable as a pitch framer, a little bit streaky this year where there have been some very notable screw ups from Wallach. Um, but overall, those numbers are more favorable for him than Sandy Leone. The problem with Wallach is that um, opposing base dealers are running on him at will. And that's something that was a moderate strength of his in the past, even though he never had elite arm strength, that his pop time was pretty respectable. And for whatever reason, that is not working out this year. I mean, he inter, opposing base runners are nearly perfect attempting to steal against him, and they're doing it at a high frequency uh, compared to both Alfaro and Leon back there. It's definitely something that opposing teams are scouting with the Marlins, and they feel that at his current state that Wallach is someone they can run against. Um, for all my criticisms about Jorge Alfaro offensively, I mean, Wallach has been just a disaster himself so far this year. He's had some bright spots in previous years. I'd say last year, um, like Wallach was legitimately on par with Alfaro as an offensive player. But this year, there's just nothing to like about Wallach. He is not hitting for power at all, and that's something he's done occasionally in the past. Uh, the more concerning thing is how much he is swinging and missing at balls in the strike zone like even though he is getting some pitches to hit he's batting near the bottom of the lineup there that there's really there's no reason why he hit opposing pitchers wouldn't want to challenge him and they are doing it and he is not taking advantage of it his swing and miss rate on pitches in the zone it's one of the worst in baseball out of hundreds and hundreds of hitters that have had equivalent playing time to him this year it's a big issue, and there haven't really been any signs whatsoever recently that that is going to turn around. This is something I believe I referenced, if I didn't reference on a previous pod, I certainly did on our other platforms, that the way this should play out is um, it's hard to split hairs between Wallach and Leon and say which one is the weaker link, because they have both struggled. They've both been bad this year, but what I would expect is that you see Chad Wallach get optioned to A. some of this... Really all this comes down to the contractual situations where Leon is far enough into his major league service time that if the Marlins were to DFA him, and if he was to even make it through waivers, which is highly likely, that he would still have the right to elect free agency and collect what remains of his salary, which is about twice the league minimum. That once he got called up to the majors he was entitled to a prorated portion of $1.25 million this year. If the Marlins are at all concerned about their finances, and and I mean, by all indications are, they that is a very like important consideration for them when making any sort of move, that Leon should be safe. Because if they're going to be paying him anyway, then they might as well pay him for him to be on their team and in their organization. Another uh, the very curious stat that I dug up, that I think is more. I wouldn't put too much stock into this, but including Sunday, Marlins pitchers have a 2.88 ERA this year when throwing to San Diego, and that's over a sample of 172 innings. Just like to put that into perspective, it's imagine one pitcher working 172 innings with a 2.88 ERA. You would say that guy is an ace. That he's one of the better pitchers in the league. I mean, that is basically what. Sandy Alcantara has done dated back to the middle of the 2019 season. Basically, everybody turns into Sandy when they are pitching to Sandy Leon. Sorry for the confusion there, but you, you see what I mean that with Leon catching. Marlins pitchers have a 2.88 ERA. With Chad Wallach, it is about seven-tenths of a run higher, a 3.57 ERA. Still very good, but that's a significant difference. And then with Jorge Alfaro, so far this year before his injury, it was a 4.15 ERA. There's a lot of noise with these numbers. Um, as I, I wish I could give credit to uh, who pointed it out to me on Twitter that Of course, Alfaro's sample was at the very beginning of the year when Don Mattingly was having some trouble distinguishing what pitchers belonged in which roles coming out of the bullpen. So that led to some inflated numbers because Alfaro was catching the majority of those games early on, and he was... And this that falls on Mattingly more so than Alfaro. I don't think there was anything in particular that Alfaro was messing up. Um, Just to point fingers briefly to someone like Anthony Bass, I don't think it was Alfaro that made Bass struggle so much um, during his first couple save opportunities with the team. So there's a lot of noise there. And if you dig into the split, even though there's that pretty decent range in opposing ERA, the peripheral numbers are pretty similar across the board. In terms of strikeout rate with Leon behind the plate, it's identical to with Walk behind the plate. In terms of walk rate, it's about the same. Home run rate, about the same. And what was working against Alfaro early on is that pitchers were allowing way more home runs with him behind the plate. For whatever reason, when Sandy Leon is behind the plate, the Marlins' fielders turn way more double plays than in other situations. Sandy doesn't really have any control over that. I think he's only been involved with maybe two of those double plays, plays at the plate that he was making. So for the most part, that is out of his hands and into his teammates' hands. So a lot of randomness going on there, even in a pretty big sample. With that being said, the fact that good things seem to happen with Sandy behind the plate, uh, that's just another reason why the team would be motivated to hold on to him for the time being. So Wallach would go down to AAA. And a final note on the catching situation is the question of if both Leon and Wallach are not getting the job done, when does the team consider something um, go to the next man up at AAA Jacksonville, Brian Navaretto? You remember him very briefly in the majors last year, finally made his major league debut. They brought him back during the offseason uh, after he kind of cleared waivers. He went unclaimed by other teams. They had opportunities to nab him. And now he is off to an awesome start offensively in Jacksonville, um, where entering Sunday, hitting 324 with a 1078 OPS, three home runs, seven total extra base hits. That's 10 RBIs in 11 games played at the AAA level. He had never played at AAA before. He is uh, significantly younger than both Alfaro and Wallach, and certainly younger than Sandy Leone. So this is his age 26 season. Historically, not a whole lot of reason to trust that he's a great offensive player in the minors with the Twins organization and briefly with the Yankees organization. He was a poor hitter, didn't show a ton of power, uh, but respectable contact skills at the very least. A better athlete than either Leon or Wallach when you're talking about uh, being useful as a base runner. So if he keeps this up for another few weeks, then I think it becomes an interesting conversation um, depending on how much he does continue hitting. Um, His track record throwing out base runners in the minors is exceptional. A career 47% caught stealing rate that has not transferred over yet here into 2021. So so Navarito is a guy to keep your eye on, but his long track record is not all that inspiring. So I wouldn't get your hopes up too high, but there does come a point where he may force his way up into the major leagues. That will do it for this episode here of the official show. Eli Sussman here. And thanks, as always, to Symbol for the support. More than two months as our sponsor here on the Fish Stripes podcast. A very, very busy week ahead on Monday uh, where they begin a four-game series against the Phillies in Lone Depot Park trying to leapfrog the Phillies in the standings, if all goes right this week, potentially raise all the way up to first place uh, from following the team this season. I think what we've seen is that when when they just seem on track to finally break out and get over the hump and emerge as a consistently good team, there's one step back. So that's kind of my mindset moving forward that I think you need to be prepared for less than perfection from this team, even if they are in a stronger position entering this series. Our series preview, uh, Nicole Cahill will have her article up on Fish Stripes on Monday morning. uh, Monday night, an hour before first pitch, we'll have our Fish Stripes Live live stream on Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. uh, On this podcast channel later this week, of course, we have our small pods from A.T. Wordall and from Daniel Rodriguez on Tuesday through Friday. Throughout every Marlins game, be sure to play along with us our Fish Picks prop bets contest it's free to play the link to play is embedded right there on our homepage and on fishstripes.com and we tweet it out every single day we'd love for you to play along more than 300 marlins fans are already doing so this season and on a side if you have a small business based in south florida and interested in spreading the word about that and getting involved in our podcast and getting involved in our contest as a sponsor of fish picks just hit me up Fun week up ahead, and we thank you always for the support. Be sure to subscribe to the pod, rate and review wherever applicable, and I always enjoy your feedback about how we can make this even better. As always, go fish!